The Athletic. Hello, I'm Ian McIntosh and welcome to the Football Manager Show, sponsored by LiveScore. On the show today, we discuss Chelsea. After years of leaving them on the shelf, are they now a legitimate FM challenge worthy of your time? We speak to the Athletics' Liam Toomey. We asked for your confessions last week, and my word did you deliver. Father Stephen is in the house. Hey, book club's back, and still a bit traumatised after reading Nathan Fogg's brilliant account of Blackpool's rise and demise. And it's the live score legend of the game that you've all been asking. Well, some of you have been asked. At least four of you have asked for. So let's get started. Now, I don't want to get judgy. Look, football manager's a game. You can play it however you like. But, I mean, realistically, none of us start as PSG, do we? I mean, why would you? Nothing to achieve. You've got infinite money. It's almost impossible not to win the league. The only scenario in which you'd want to manage PSG is if you've sort of done all right somewhere else without actually winning a trophy and you want to kind of Pochettino up your CV before you go somewhere else. And for nearly two decades, you'd say the same about Chelsea, wouldn't you? I mean, unless you're a Chelsea fan, why on earth would you start with them? But while PSG are still the first destination of the scoundrel, Is it time to reassess the Chelsea job? After all, you start with a transfer embargo now, and then there's a random takeover with new owners. And and to be honest, Chelsea have got a bit of work to do. I know they won the Champions League, but on this game, Man UFC are brilliant, Liverpool are brilliant, Man City are brilliant. You're giving everyone probably a two-transfer window head start. So trying to get Chelsea back to the top is, I mean, whisper it, but it's a bit of a challenge. So to talk us through that challenge, here's the man who literally watches them for a living. It's the Athletics' Liam Toomey. Liam, hello. Hello. We tried to get you on last week. You are in Madrid and the internet was terrible. But in a way, probably good that you were able to save your energy for what... I mean, it's been a while since I covered a football match, but I was watching on my sofa thinking, <laughs> they're going to have a nightmare with the deadlines here. Yeah, it was one of those nights where I was very, very happy to be working for a place that doesn't demand copy on the whistle. Never more grateful for the considered overnight brief that we often have at The Athletic. It was an incredible game. One of those games that kind of reaches a level where it defies a match report because too much stuff has happened to to (laughs) physically remember. I think there are very few games that you could make a strong argument for watching again immediately after they finish. But I think that that one was right up there. And it's it's times like that where you're just so happy to do what you do for a living because you didn't just get to see it, you got paid to see it. But most of your time over the last few months has been spent on rather weightier matters. For anyone who doesn't completely keep up with these things, what is the latest on the takeover? So we're down to final three bidders after the Ricketts family, not Michael Ricketts, um, the <laughs> American businessmen at the Ricketts and Ken Griffin, they pulled out their public line was that they couldn't agree on how the shares would be divvied up, essentially, and who would be the majority shareholder. So we're down to three. The consortium led by Todd Bowley, who appeared to have been kind of front and centre, at least in the public eye, since the very start of this process. A consortium fronted by 
Martin Broughton, who of course was briefly at Liverpool and kind of rescued them. But the main money behind that bid is is Josh Harris and David Blitzer, who are rather awkwardly involved at Crystal Palace. I'm I'm not sure whether they were at Wembley for the FA Cup semi final <laughs> that, that, that Chelsea won, but they they are very much serious contenders as well. And then we have the bid that has been very silent up until now and is only really making themselves more public in the last week or so, and that's the the bid headed by Steve Paluca and Larry Tannenbaum. He's been the majority owner of Atalanta for all of about six weeks. <laughs> so he, he has <laughs> a bit perfect. of a complicating factor as well. Yeah, so regardless of who wins, Chelsea will be certainly majority American-owned. At the moment, Chelsea can't renew any contracts. They can't make any signings. And this all makes it fascinating because it's so rare that a football manager data update reflects these kind of issues you know we, we actually had a crack at recreating them using the data editor until it became apparent that SI were going to do it for us but I've just started up a Chelsea game in the office and you've got two consortiums arguing and you've got no hope of making any signings so the game is is very neatly set up to to mirror everything but there are there are bigger issues here aren't there because Roman Abramovich was pushing for a new stadium for the better part of the last 10 years. I'm guessing that's a lot of money wasted on planning permission now. Yeah, I don't think we'll ever know the full figure for for the sunk cost of the Abramovich project. I mean, that's been very much dead since 2018 when it was on the surface paused due to an unfavourable investment climate. But it was quite clear at the time that there was no time frame to revive it. And, and already it seemed like a very live possibility that the Abramovich plan for this cathedral of football inspired by Westminster Abbey would never actually come to fruition. And it's also pretty clear throughout this bid process that if Chelsea do get a new stadium, and it has been a point of emphasis in this auction that all of the bid teams have to present a viable plan for redeveloping Stamford Bridge, it will be notably less expensive and less expansive in its ambition. There are a couple of the the bid teams talking about trying to redevelop stand by stand, which is very, very difficult on the Stamford Bridge site, but something that would at least mean that they don't have to spend, you know, three years at Wembley lodging um, while, the, while their stadium gets knocked down and rebuilt again. But it, it is all very complicated, but it does look like Chelsea will get moving on a new stadium project as part of this process. And if you're wondering why we're discussing this, it's to kind of set the scene for taking over at Chelsea because they are not really sustainable in their present form. They don't have a big enough stadium to pay for all of these many signings. And it is a funny sort of squad, isn't it? Now, there are some great videos on TIFO IRL. If you look up JJ Bull and Chelsea, he does a really good one on on what Thomas Tuchel did to change things when he took over from, from Frank Lampard. But already, just taking one glance, Liam, there are so many attacking midfielders. What the hell went on? How many How many can they play at any one time? Brownovich loves an attacking midfielder. He really does. It's the combination of the players that have come through at Cobham and that wave of recruitment that they had in the summer of 2020 when no one else was spending. I think there they were some opportunistic buys in there. You know, Kai Havertz was somebody that, that Chelsea had been monitoring for a long time, but so had all of the other leading clubs in Europe. It was opportunistic in the sense that Chelsea realised that they could jump to the front of the queue. The same sort of thing with Timo Werner, who very much looked like he was going to Liverpool until COVID hit and, and Liverpool reassessed their priorities in the market. Hakim Ziyech was, was kind of an opportunistic buy that, 
you know, someone Frank Lampard liked and, and the club liked and was available at a reasonable price. So that there's always been an element of this to Chelsea's transfer strategy. I mean, they, they do like to present themselves as taking the broader view and, and forward planning, but because they generally have such a high turnover of coaches, this is a broader issue with the squad, not just with the attacking midfielders, but you tend to end up with players that have been accumulated under different coaches who have different visions for the way, where the team is going. So now you end up with a squad that has a, an incredible amount of options in the final third of the pitch, but they don't necessarily all fit together. This is where we need your expertise. So many attacking midfielders, um, right, left and centre. If you were to pick your perfect three to sit behind the striker, who would they be and in what sort of format? Well, I think it kind of depends whether you're playing Kai Havertz up front. That frees up a slot. I, I would be inclined to do so. I think he's kind of cemented him, himself as a very Ooh. hyper-modern pressing number nine now so you, you wouldn't try and fix Lukaku oh, I, th- I think in this Tuchel system it just seems like an unbridgeable gap he, he seems to have been playing a different game from the rest of the team most of the season but what about an Atumi system would you <laughs> if you were taking over now would you be like you know what let, let's keep elements of, uh, of Tuchel but let's go hardcore Tumi well it's a it's a running gag on our straight out Cobham podcast that I am a Kai Havertz fanboy um, so I <laughs> I think I I have to build the system around him one way or the other. And I do actually think his best position in a top team is as a kind of pressing nine that drops deep and wide and gives you sort of positional flexibility. So I I would put him up front. And then if you're talking about attacking midfielders around him, Mason Mount has to play because he, he sets the tone in terms of pressing. I think you're beginning to see more of an end product from him in terms of goals and assists as well. His decision-making in the final third is is improving, as you would expect, with more and more big game experience. Where would you have him? Would you have him as a sort of old-fashioned number 10 attacking midfielder or would you stick him as a sort of playmaker inside left? I think he's, I think he's always seen himself as either a very forward-thinking eight or as a ten. So if you if you're playing some sort of four-two-three-one, which would be a very untuchel system, then I would certainly play him as the ten. If you were playing Tuchel's system, then you would probably have him on the left of the three, with Havertz through the middle. Gives a lot of opportunity for them to swap swap positions, and they're both very intelligent in terms of dropping deep and and picking up spaces in between the lines who else would you have in that attacking midfield I would have I think Hakim Ziyech on the right as a style over substance left footer myself in five aside <laughs> I have always had a soft spot for the for the and I'm not suggesting Ziyech's style over substance because he, he registers a lot of assists I love the style with which he plays the game and he's also of, of all of Chelsea's attacking midfielders he's the only one that really wants to play off the right Everyone else either wants to be a 10 or play off the left. So I, I I think he provides necessary balance. I really like the combinations between him and an overlapping Reese James as well. That's a really dangerous combination. So I, I would have him in there. If it's a front three, then you're sorted with, with Mount, Havertz and Ziyech. If you're having a, a sort of 4-2-3-1, that final spot is really tricky. It is. I spent half an hour staring at it in confusion this morning. <laughs> Pulisic has has a lot to recommend him when he's at his best and he's in rhythm and he's shown that in his best stretches for Chelsea but it hasn't necessarily been too consistent. Timo Werner has has tended to be part of 
many of Chelsea's best performances. Infuriating though he can be, he dovetails really well with Havertz. When Havertz drops deep, he can run into that space. And he's always asking questions of defences. But you also have to give give a mention to, to Callum Hudson-Odoi, who we haven't seen in a while. But all of his advanced stats in terms of sort of creating shots and for other people are off the charts. You know, you look across the Premier League, he's, he's always one of the best. But I would probably give Pulisic, I think, the edge. Um, Hudson-Odoi hasn't quite got the goals to his game. Werner hasn't quite got the all-around skill set against teams maybe that sit a bit deeper. So I, I think Pulisic's probably the best compliment. All right. I'm going to ask you to swing the axe and get rid of three big names, which is the bare minimum I think you're going to have to get rid of if you're managing this football team. Well, I mean, the ones out of contract might leave of their own accord. <laughs> so that could, that could make my decision for me. I think, yeah, I mean, Chelsea really want to keep Antonio Rudiger, but there's a very real risk that they lose him this summer. They haven't got many defenders, have they? No, it's the entire starting defence, the entire finishing defence, sorry, of the Champions League final in Porto could end up in Barcelona next season. Yeah. <laughs> for, for one reason or another. Although Azpilicueta has triggered an option. So he, he is technically around for next season. We'll, we'll see what happens there. I mean, there, there are players here that are going to really struggle to get in the team. There's, I mean, Ross Barkley, I remember him. Mm. And you can't have that many attacking midfielders and there has to be an answer to the Ruben Loftus-Cheek question. And there's so many people to get rid of to make this a sort of tight, cohesive team and still leave room for for our next subject, the excellent academy system. I mean, it's actually one of the things when you start as Chelsea manager, they demand that you keep the academy system at, at the very top, which is great for me because I like managing the under-18s. There needs to be a pathway and, and you and I have sat next to each other at Stamford Bridge over over the years, seeing a succession of managers way too scared to play academy players because they know how easy it is to get sacked. The only time Chelsea have ever done it is when they've had literally no other option. It, it must be incredibly frustrating to watch it. Well, yeah, I mean, was it a transfer ban or was it an intervention? Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's still a debate among the Chelsea fan base about what that actually meant. There's no doubt that it was a, an extremely significant moment in the evolution of this current team, because now Mason Mount and Reese James are absolutely central to Chelsea. They are homegrown pillars of everything this club will do for, for the next 10 years, if they, if they can keep them for that long. And then you look beyond that, there are always so many talented young players coming through. And the, the challenge in recent years for Chelsea has been these guys get to having like one year left on their first pro contract and they're beginning to wise up and they're beginning to demand of Chelsea, you know, either you lay out a, a very clear, tangible pathway into regular first team football, or we're just going to leverage our contract situations to get a move. I mean, you saw that with Tino Livramento uh, going to Southampton, which has been a fantastic move for his development. Um, Tarek Lamptey, of course, went to Brighton and, and injury has been really the only obstacle to his rise since. Uh, and and so you're gradually seeing now these these really talented Chelsea youngsters dotted around the Premier League playing really well. Mark Gurhey, captain in Crystal Palace on occasion this year and, and being a real stalwart for them. And Chelsea have at least tried to adapt to this by uh, kind of in, insisting on buybacks and matching options, um, in the, certainly in the cases of Gurhey and, and Livramento 
to give them that little bit more flexibility to bring these guys back if they if they develop elsewhere. Um, but I think there will also be a, more of an effort under new ownership to to give guys like Conor Gallagher, maybe Armando Breuer, more of a genuine pathway to, to minutes much earlier. Now, the thing that I want to do, as I say, I, I want to make them a, a more tight, cohesive first-team squad, put far more balance in there. I want a pathway for the young players. I want to end this kind of 40 players going to Vitesse Arnhem at any one time. Who's really good and coming up through the ranks? Who can be like the, the vanguard of my new Chelsea? Well, I think one that a lot of Chelsea fans are looking at at the moment, particularly due to the defensive situation with the contracts, is Levi Colwell, uh, who's been superb at Huddersfield this season and is a really elegant, powerful, left-sided centre-back, which in itself makes him quite a valuable commodity. And I think you know a lot of Chelsea fans are looking at it as him potentially being good enough to come in and challenge for a starting spot on the left of that back three as soon as next season. And... and of course, if, if Rudiger does walk, uh, there's a big hole there and that in itself could present an opportunity for him that maybe Chelsea don't have to go out and spend 60, 70 million replacing Rudiger. They could they could just give Colwell a chance. And I do think Thomas Tuchel will use this pre-season, which feels like the first proper pre-season that Chelsea have had in about two or three years, to really take a proper look at some of the best young prospects that are still on the books and and make key decisions. Just before we, we let you go, do you think this is an opportunity now for Chelsea to be a bit more normal? I mean, it's, it's a funny kind of thing because you look back over the near 20 years of Abramovich and, and given their due, they have won a lot of trophies, but you always think, well, could they be bigger, more sustainable, more cohesive, more logical? Do you think this is an opportunity or do you think it could just be the end of an era? I think it's an opportunity and it's also an obligation because they're not a billionaire's plaything anymore. They are going to be run as a business and business decisions will have to make business sense. You can't have a striker of almost £100 million transfer fee who just doesn't fit your team and is sitting on the bench for the biggest games of the season. You can't have the world's most expensive goalkeeper acting as your number two. You know, that you can carry these things when you've got someone like Abramovich bankrolling you and, and covering your losses. But whoever takes over Chelsea um, will, will want to run them, I think, much more in line with what we've seen from Liverpool, where they, they get their recruitment right. They make smart decisions. They don't miss very often. And, um, and they're willing to make tough decisions with contracts as well to keep the wage bill under control. Chelsea now have the second highest wage bill in England. That has to come down. You, know, you mentioned guys like Ross Barkley. That's a symptom of the of the wastage there has been and the kind of flabbiness in this squad. So that it's an opportunity. It's also an obligation. Well, there you are. If uh, if you're looking for a challenge and you want to do this, uh, give it a crack and let us know. You know how to get in touch with us. Uh, iMacintosh at theathletic.com or on Twitter, uh, Ian underscore games. Liam, if we want to find all of your Chelsea stuff, where do we go? Well, you can usually find me tweeting my work and bad jokes. Excellent. On Twitter, at Liam underscore Toomey. But you can also find me on the Chelsea section of The Athletic and in our bi-weekly podcast straight out of Cobham. Fantastic. Liam, thank you so much. It's more than a score with Live Score. Legends of the game. 
So, what's all this about then? Well, with LiveScore, which I'm certain you've all downloaded for free from the App Store or Google Play, you get the latest action stats and analysis from around the world. Because we know with football, it goes beyond scores. It's the stories from the pitch and the stands. Players and fans all spinning their own strands of the mighty football web that links us all together. And there's no better way to twang that web than by playing Football Manager. And because we've been doing it for so many years, we've made a few memories. Welcome to Legends of the Game. Hello to Robert Lamont, who got in touch this week and said, I'm shocked Freddie Adu hasn't had a mention yet. Today's the day, Robert. Freddie Adu first appears in our lives in CMO 304, that troubled precursor to the Great Schism. He was 15, he was at DC United, and he had the sort of stats that only vaguely suggest greatness. A bit of technique, a bit of flair, a lot of determination and work rate. You'd buy him, you'd work with him, you'd let him develop, and boom! Before he was legally able to buy a drink, he'd force your chairman to stock up on champagne. Alas, in real life, it was never meant to be. Having pinged world football's radar with a goal spree in the under-17 World Cup, Adu was hot property. Inevitably, he was compared to Pele by everyone apart from Pele, who compared him to Mozart. Now, Adu was not from a rich family. His mum was working multiple jobs just to get him to training, and then all of a sudden he's got sponsors chucking money at him. That's good news for the family, but... Bad news for him. See, those sponsors all wanted a bit of him and it wasn't long before he found himself getting dragged all over the place. His focus shifted, his development stalled and he never really recovered. Now, the first red flag came when DC United had signed him to such fanfare at the age of 14. Let him join Real Salt Lake in 2007. He'd also spent a short spell on trial with Manchester UFC, but he didn't make the grade there, and so it was Benfica who paid $2 million for his MLS registration and brought him to Europe for the first time. And he didn't stay there long. He saw out the last four years of his contract with four different but increasingly disappointing loan spells. He returned to the US with Philadelphia Union and then he went on a long run of failed trials and dismal spells all around the world. He actually made a shock return to the US men's national team in 2011. He even supplied a couple of assists, but it was a rare purple patch. He's 32 now, and last year he was released by Osterlen, a third-flight Swedish team. His coach described his physical fitness as zero. In his entire career, Adu has never scored more than five goals in a single campaign. Now, it's at this stage that I'd usually lighten the mood by telling you about the school he just opened, but the best I can do is point to a couple of posts on his Twitter account that seem to indicate some sort of youth coaching. Alas, he also claims on the feed that World War Z was a great movie, so I think his judgement is way off. But, as he says in his bio, never put a full stop where God put a comma. So maybe Freddie Adu's big moment is still to come. That was It's More Than a Score with Live Score Legends of the Game. You can get real-time updates and results, match highlights and breaking news from around the football world on the Live Score app. And it's completely free. Just search for it on the App Store or Google Play now. If you're ever on Fleet Street and you're feeling peckish, I urge you to visit Dilietto. They're just on the corner of Fetters Lane and for £5.75 you can buy a melted sandwich the size of a family car. 
Me and producer Steve buy them after recording the show and they're, they're basically an emotional experience. But if you're prepared to spend an extra 25p, you could secure yourself six months of The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com forward slash fmpod now. And if you've never subscribed before, well, this is your moment. Six quid by six months of the best football writing in the world. Or a giant sandwich. Your choice. So that's theathletic.com forward slash fmpod. Go there immediately. Welcome back to uh, FM Confessional. You'll have, you'll have heard this recently. Um, Football Manager is a game that's played by people across the world. Lots of different people who play in lots of different ways. And sometimes people do bad things, terrible things, uh, and it weighs heavy on them. And we always feel that this show is, is, is a form of therapy, a form of group therapy for, for getting through the uh, the travails of, of this abstract universe that we voluntarily commit to um, but this is this is a little more personal so if there's anything that you've done that you feel terrible about father Stephen is is here to hear your confession father Stephen how are you I'm well my son that's excellent news we have a message he didn't say to be anonymous so I'm gonna say his name because there was no mention of please don't say my name. I hope I hope that works out. I realise this isn't how confession generally works in, in the Catholic Church, but Jason Lombos has written in. He says, uh, Father Stephen, I have a horrible confession to make. I've never played football manager without using some sort of in-game editor. And and I, I've actually really enjoyed playing FM since 2012. I've, I've clocked up 1,200 hours on the past two versions. This is where it gets bad, Father Stephen. Hmm. I love editing players' potentials, turning them into wonder kids out of nowhere, basically making sure my team are always the best. I also love the safety of being unsackable as well. He goes on to ask for tips of how to be a proper football manager, but I think we should deal with the, um, with the cheating elephant in the room, really, shouldn't we? Um, Father Stephen, is this okay? What Jesus would say is the world is built on fairness, and... Jason, my son, I understand why you may have made these things to make things easier for yourself, but that fairness is what guides us through, and you have strayed from the light in that regard, my son. Father Stephen is the only person Jason cheating, Jason himself. That is very much the case, Ian, my son. I, the thing is, I thought about I thought about this a lot. I thought about this on the bus into work today, and there is an argument we had an email once when we were talking about save scumming and we had an email from someone who said i I save scum it's how i learn more about football it's how i learn more about the game and i'm having fun and who are you to tell me that that this is wrong and and i do i do get that and i also think psychologists would have a lot to say about the very notion of of play that it's something that that we do as children and and some of us forget how to do it as adults you look at kids playing with stuffed toys they give them names they give them superpowers and then they they let them interact with each other and and really i guess this is an extension of of this and we shouldn't be too hard on jason but the the, yeah the flip side is he never ever gets to tell anyone about his game he never gets any credit no credit for jason what do we do do we do we forgive him we forgive him as we thank him for his confession and for sharing his sins but his penance must be to play 
football manager and change nothing. You know what his penance should be? It should be to play football manager, change nothing and be the South End manager. Or indeed Sunderland or Derby. Take your pick, Jason. That's your equivalent of three Hail Marys. I should say he's also a big fan of the podcast and, and the book club. Um, honestly, uh, when, when it comes to tips on how to be a proper football manager, I say just jump into it. Take your time. Remember, you don't have to finish a season in a night. Just take your time. Spend an hour just sorting stuff out. Don't even play a game. And lean into it. And, and you will find that the satisfaction gained from having a good result it outstrips everything else that you can get with the editor Jason thank you so much for writing in if you have a confession for Father Stephen get in touch do say whether you want to be anonymous or or not because I think we've just learned that that's a key thing it's uh, imacintosh at theathletic.com and uh, our doors and our hearts are always open Welcome back to Book Club. Now, I firmly believe that a major sign of a good football book is that you can recommend it to any football fan. Uh, like you don't need to be a fan uh, of that club. Take Mike Calvin's Millwall book, Family. That's a case in point. Who likes Millwall, eh? Only Millwall fans. But Mike's book is so good, you actually come out, I don't know, sort of liking them. It's weird. So welcome then to Nathan Fogg's How Not to Run a Football Club, or to put it another way, the story behind Blackpool's sudden rise to the Premier League and their equally sudden collapse. Now, never mind recommending this to football fans. This should be required reading in the corridors of power. It won't be, obviously, because they never learn. But that's beside the point. Now, quick recap for younger listeners. Blackpool were one of the first powerhouses of the post-war era. Stanley Matthews, Stan Mortensen, all of that. They fell away in the late 60s. They were in the fourth division by the mid-80s and were then taken over by local businessman Owen Oyston. Now, he was convicted and imprisoned for the rape of a 16-year-old girl in 1996, which might make you think... That's the kind of thing that would make it impossible for you to remain involved with a professional football club. But uh, but no, no, he was only removed from the board in 2019 after the High Court stepped in and concluded that he and his son Carl had illegitimately stripped the club. Now, this book tells the story of everything in between, and by thunder, there's a lot. Now, this is the story of a club that somehow, in the midst of all the chaos, struck gold with Ian Holloway, playing their way into the Premier League in style, and then they squandered the opportunity. And this is the story of a club that went so badly wrong, it ended up suing its own fans. It is an absolutely eye-popping read, and whoever had to do the legal checks on this one has my eternal sympathy. Every page seems to bring a new level of, they did what? So what makes it a good read for a football manager player? Well, Mostly the Ian Holloway bits, to be honest. I I love the story about him just sitting on the sidelines, stewing about his failure at Leicester City for nearly a year, and then resolving simply to follow his heart. And just the next job he gets, he's just going to play the kind of football that he would pay to watch. And Blackpool seemed, for you know, so many reasons, just a dead end job for the desperate. But against opposition far better funded. Holloway prevailed and won promotion. And you know what? They very nearly stayed up that year too. So 
You can take that story and use it as inspiration for your own experiments, but, but stick around for the rest of the book if you dare and see where you end up. I reckon you'll end up like me, wondering why historic community football clubs aren't treated as cultural assets and protected in the same way as listed buildings. I know, I remember why they don't do that, because it doesn't fit in with football's senseless and self-destructive avarice. Yeah, there it is. Anyway, it's a fantastic book, well-researched, skillfully written. You should check it out. It is called How Not to Run a Football Club. It's by Nathan Fogg. It's out on Pitch Publishing. It is still hardback right now, but you can get it for $9.99 on Kindle or Apple Books. It's time for your letters. You can get in touch with us always. I'm Macintosh at theathletic.com or on Twitter, Ian underscore games. I am joined by producer Steve. How are you, Steve? I'm well, I'm well. Just sort of slightly reading from that Blackpool book club thing. To <laughs> Something else, isn't it? You just forget, don't you? You have to be careful where you re- read it. I finished it off on a park bench not too far from the office eating my sandwich. And you keep saying things out loud. I haven't had one like that since the Game of Thrones book where you get to the Red Wedding, where I was on the metro up in the northeast and uh, just suddenly went, what? <laughs> At the top of my voice and startled an entire train. Speaking of sandwiches, I'm sitting here, my stomach rumbling ever since we mentioned Dilietto. Oh, um, yeah. So, uh, it, I mean, right now it is 11.47. That is early to go for lunch, but I am ready. Let's do these letters. Who, who wrote in? First up is Martin Logan. Martin says, thanks to your podcast and the lack of social life by having two daughters, I took the plunge into FM22, having not played since the 2007 version. Well, welcome back, Martin, and I'm glad that the pod has helped you get back into into FM. Martin says, after reading countless stories in the community about how everyone played the game, I was intrigued by the journeyman set up. So Martin loaded 30-odd leagues, over 15 nations across Europe, South America, Asia, started off as unemployed, despite his spicy-looking suit. Some people pay more attention to the sort of avatar than others. Martin's gone for a lovely-looking suit, by the sounds of it. So he was there, ready and waiting excitedly to see where he could end up. So he's halfway through that first season. Uh, He's heading to China for Chengdu Better City in the Chinese second tier. So only three games were left in that first season when he arrived. And it was more of a looking at a rebuild for the next year. He came second on goal difference in the second season, which was enough for promotion to the Chinese Super League. Then, as he describes it, the magical FM moment, scouts drop a report about a player called Gabriel Novaes, a Brazilian striker and former Barcelona B player. This guy had 49 goals in 35 league games for Martin. Single-handedly took him, listen to this, the chi- to the tr- took him to the Chinese Super League title in his second full season, bearing in mind the previous season was in the second tier. So what Martin wants to know now is despite this unexpected success, he hasn't been offered any jobs elsewhere or linked with any in the job centre. Is this normal, Ian? Yes, for multiple reasons. First of all, you want to check your contract length. You'll get offered loads of jobs if you're unemployed and you might get offered quite a lot of jobs if your contract's about to expire. But if you've got a long contract and you're happy and you're doing well, there will be a sort of limit on on what gets offered to you. Also, everyone listening to this right now, name me the last man who won the Premier League in China. Yeah, you can't do it. The problem is your reputation is going to be really, really good in China and not so hot everywhere else. So you might see some reputational build, but if you want to get offered the really big plum jobs, you're going to have to steadily make your make your way back across. So it will take some time. Best way to get offered loads of jobs, though, is to quit the one that you're in. Now that, that is a bit of a gamble. Walk off into the sunset. 
Exactly, exactly. Gavin Smith is in his Pentagon Challenge. Gavin Smith, isn't he? He is, and he is currently on FN22 at Swallows FC in South Africa. And he's won everything there was to win bar the Asian Champions League. But it was time to move on, as Mo Barrow broke his heart too often in the Champions League after two years of being knocked out by John Book Hyundai Motors. In his first season, we kept the Swallows up in the Premier League. Second season, won the league. Third season, he got through his African Champions League group, which had two Tunisian semi-finalists from last season in the group. So did really well to get out of that group and sort of building towards the Champions League quarterfinal as he writes this letter. And if you want to see more of that from Gavin, he does post regularly on Twitter. That is at BoboTroubles19 if anyone has any interest of following Gavin's Pentagon Challenge as it continues. Okay, yeah, uh, at BoboTroubles19. Got quite a few of you doing the Pentagon Challenge. Uh, Still waiting for a new update from Dan Taken, who uh, I think was getting very close to completing it. Who else we got? Colin Jessup has three questions. Number one, how can I get the best out of Eden Hazard? I think Real Madrid had that question as well, to be honest. Yeah. I've been playing him on the left-hand side as both inside forward and an inverted winger, both on attack, and he still doesn't score enough or take people on. I want the old Eden back. So that's the first question. Ian, what do we say? Thanks. So remember the key differences bet- between inside forward and inverted winger. Your inside forward is always going to try and get behind the line of defence. It's what I do with Alan San Maximan at Newcastle as an inside forward on the left. So there he's going to be in a position to uh, to score. As an inverted winger, he will sort of cut south of the defensive line, if you know what I mean. He'll be in front of them looking for the through ball. Um, so you need to decide what you want to do with him. You can change personal instructions. You can make him more expressive you can tell him to to run more Uh, you can tell him to take long shots all all kinds of things like that so that might make a difference but also what are the other teams doing against you if they're absolutely packing the defense if they've got three centre-backs and two defensive midfielders and you've got Eden Hazard cutting in from the right right into that traffic jam of of people chances are he's going to struggle a bit everything else will come down to confidence and morale and fitness and things like that so hopefully there's there's enough there to get you going but the simple rule with football manager is decide what you want to do as a team at the beginning and then make sure everything works towards that what's question two question two is i want to start a new credit club save but do the clubs get a takeover at some point because you're going to need a bit of money at red bull london nice i genuinely don't know and we completely forgot to get this checked out i would be fairly sure it would be a no because the whole point of creator club would be to well you know create a club but the best way to do it for yourself is you can buy the in-game editor in football manager i think it's the only sort of priced dlc that football manager game has and even i didn't know about this until quite recently i think it's five pound 99 and it pretty much opens up the saved game for all sorts of, uh, well, you know, abuse or I think enhancement. So in this instance, it would be possible for your Red Bull London to suddenly have a, you know, 250 million in the bank and a sugar daddy chairman and all the things that, that go with it. So you could get into it on that. Obviously, once it's there and it's sitting on, on your computer, A, there'll be a little icon that will appear on the screen. So if you're someone who really likes bragging about your achievements, remember no one will ever believe you again once they see that little pen icon at the top of the screen. Use it to enjoy the game. Stick yourself in there or, or suddenly have the Brazil 1970 team regenerate at the age of 17 and go and have some fun with it. You know, we're, we're, maybe we're a little bit harsh on Jason back there in the confessional. Maybe, maybe he's having more fun than the rest of us. 
But sin is often funny and sin is yeah. often funny. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> sin is so Moorish. <laughs> Colin's final question is, who are slash how do I find the best new gens slash regens? Okay, well, the best way is with good scouting, obviously. The second best way is by keeping an eye on youth tournaments in particular. You're under 17s World Cups and you know, you're under 18 Premier League and things like that. If you want a real sort of cheeky way, though, one that I have not been averse to doing is go into the, the under 18 squad of Man UFC or Liverpool or something and order the players by their transfer value. Their most promising players that have come through will tend to be sort of ranked somewhere between one and three million quid. And then just to, I think, to the right of the club badge, there's a little up arrow and a little down arrow, and that will cycle you through everybody's under 18 team. So you can very, very quickly have a clear idea of who the two or three best players are in every single team. So that, that's, that's one way of doing it as well. Perfect. Next up is James Housen, who says, love the show. You may enter, James. Well done. And he says he's been an avid listener since possibly day one, especially enjoying position of the week, which will be coming back at some point soon, as it helps him understand how to use various moving parts in the game. That's a podcast as a whole, as well as obviously position of the week. James struggles to play as himself in the game. So you remember we many, many episodes ago, we had Joe Devine on talking about his avatar, Dr. Richter. So this is a variation on that. But James creates well-known football managers sort of iconic football managers that he likes adds their favorite staff to the team as well and then just copy the manager stats and then delete them from the database so examples of this are in the past he's had marcelo bielsa managing newell's old boys arsene wenger sorry i just need a moment sorry <sighs> papa arsene <laughs> trying to bring back the glory days to Arsenal. And his next quest is very topical, is Sean Dyche going to manage in Europe. Hey, good happen. There you go. Does anybody else do this, James asks, and do you know if it will ever be a feature in the game? I mean, it has been a big thing in uh, in TIFO. Joe Devine does it. Genius producer Don Maher, who's done a lot of the football manager coverage, does it. I actually did it with a 43-year-old Alex Ferguson coming back to Manchester United to fix it. I don't think many people do it. I think most people would prefer to be themselves, but I, I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. Do you know if it will ever be a feature in the game? Probably not, but then there's nothing to stop you doing it. If you do want to do it and make it really realistic, get like a little Google Images headshot of the manager you're trying to imitate and then just pretend it's you, do the thing with the little dots and um, invariably come out looking a bit creepy, but it's, it's always worth a go. We got time for one more, haven't we? We do, and that'll be David Warren. He is talking about how he describes it. His little flightless bird is C.F. Osh Belenenses, or Belenenses, who were once one of the great Portuguese sides. A split in the club a few years ago left the other half, S.A.D. Belenenses, with all the players, and they remained in the top flight. Belenenses, uh, who David took on, were dropped to the seventh tier and are very, very poor, but this is odd, isn't it? They kept the stadium, the kit, the sort of official history, and the fans. FM22 finds us in the fourth division, but upon reading this, we will be in the third, which is, I'm guessing, his prediction here. David's first foray into the game was FM21 and has just loaded FM22 in March, about a month ago at time of recording. Instead of asking for guidance, I just wonder if folks go through the same issues that I have with the game. First issue is, does your sleep cycle get completely destroyed by this game? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure many people say, I mean, of course, yes, to that. Number two, do your players ever get injuries on complete rest days? That's an interesting one. Number three, do you ever load your save the following day and realise you signed 
8 to 12 unscouted capped under 19 players from Africa or South America hoping one would be the next great one because for him it's never worked out has it ever worked this sort of like grabbing a whole bunch and just you know if you get 8 to 12 one of them might be a genius has that ever worked for anyone else he just finally mentions I won't mention the beer consumption so to go through those Ian alright uh, does your sleep cycle get completely destroyed by this game on a very serious note, you should be careful with this because sitting playing games like Football Manager late at night can, for some people, make it very difficult to sleep. I am one of those people. I have to have like a 10pm cutoff point for video games. Otherwise, I don't know if it's the blue light or the trying to think about a million things at once, but my little brain gets overstimulated and I end up lying staring at the ceiling. However, I've also found if you suffer from you know, not getting to sleep very easily. What I do is I recite in my head very, very slowly my current Newcastle team and then the second choice Newcastle team while doing deep rhythmic belly breathing. Um, and I have found when, when I'm really in my swing, it doesn't it doesn't work immediately. You have to be patient with it, but do it for two or three days. And I've now got to a point where if someone actually starts listing Newcastle players as a serious danger, I'll just fall asleep at my desk. Uh, Roberto Martinez taught me that. That's a true story. Do your players ever get injuries on complete rest days? I can't recall this ever happening. I know it would be really frustrating, but I would point you to the example of Kirk Broadfoot, who played for Rangers and injured himself on a day off when he put an egg in a microwave and well you can imagine he opened it up the egg exploded and off he went to A&E so I think players can get injuries on complete rest days uh, do you ever load your save the following day and sign yeah, 8 to 12 unscouted players yeah sometimes I mean I tend to do like mass scout searches of just you know hitting the little tick button down the left hand side and scouting 40 players at a time I deliberate a lot over my signings but it's not the worst thing in the world particularly if they're you know local to the club you've got and it doesn't create loads of work permit problems i think that's fine beer consumption i have not been able to drink and play football manager since 1995 when i came in from the sadly now demolished alma pub in chelmsford four or five pints to the good and immediately picked up my aberdeen save on cm2 and when i woke up the next morning and checked in i found that i'd spent all the money sold one of my best players and gone on an eight match losing streak i don't think that beer and football manager mix no i've definitely made some of my worst decisions playing on the train back after a few beers including selling dutan vlahovic on my Fiorentina side so yeah watch out for that be careful out there if you want to send us a letter, you send us a letter about anything. It doesn't even have to be football manager. Sometimes it's just nice to hear from you. Uh, iMacintosh at theathletic.com or on Twitter, Ian underscore games. And that was the Football Manager Show, sponsored by LiveScore. Your guest today was Liam Toomey of The Athletic. Your producer was Steve Hankey. And I don't have to tell you that I'm Ian McIntosh, because you can smell the Lynx Africa before I even walk in the room. The Athletic.